Hello everyone and welcome back! I was just telling Discord, I feel like I need a new song. I think I need a new sort of song to come in on. Hey folks, my name is Sam, this is Sidecar Stories, and, um... No, I've done Nature Boy plenty. Uh, let's see, what else? What else is there? Um, some good, maybe some good jazz stuff. I don't know. Hey, somebody help me out. Give me a good jazz song to sing so I can sort of sneak in here with, you know, swirling my glass around, wobbling my neck all smarmy-like. Missy, hello. Gems, Muffin Man, Traumatized Moral, Van Saves Lives, Heart Hook, Sapphire. <laughs> How's it going, y'all? Hello, hello, everyone. Traumatized Mortal says, hey, guys, so glad to be back. My question today is, what is your favorite book? Mine is a battle, uh, excuse me, mine is a tie between the Battle of the Labyrinth and the Half-Blood Prince. Well, I will say, uh, certainly, um, of the ones that we've read on stream thus far, uh, I really enjoyed Half-Blood Prince a lot more than I enjoyed it when I read it on my own. I think I was able to get a lot more out of it. Um, and uh, I think prior to that, my my favorite in the series had certainly been um, uh, book five. I really enjoy uh, The Flight of the Phoenix, as it's called. <laughs> Nat, hello. How's it going, Natalie? How you doing? Uh, yeah, what is the Stone Cold Steve Austin? I don't know what the what that noise is. The only one I know is that's, that's, that's all for me. Uh, let's see, Renzo, hello. Stone Cold, would that kind of go with the book? All right, I'll take your word for it. Um, on the discussion of Harry Potter, uh, hello everyone and hello, welcome to uh, Trans Visibility Day. Trans rights are human rights. I'm going to bring it up every time we talk about Harry Potter now. So, be ye forewarned. Uh, Jem says, the same stone, if it's the same Stone Cold, I know. <laughs> Hold on. Are, is there more than one Stone Cold out there someplace? Is mm, is if there's if there are multiple stone colds out there, then this becomes sort of a villain origin story where I have to go and fight off all the stone colds. Uh, Oxy, hello, how you doing? Roll it, hello. Hey, folks, how you doing today? I think Traumatized Mortal has a good question. What is your favorite book? What is your favorite book that you've read? Um, and I very much count audiobooks within that. Y'all know that about me. I don't consider that any sort of compromise with the message that the author's trying to get across. So audiobooks are books. If you've listened to it, you've experienced it. Um, let's see. Now, poetry, I think, could be something different because there is something to being able to see it. But uh, at, I think with, with books, with novels, largely... Not a big deal. Yes, you're gonna miss some things. I think, like for instance, an audiobook as we experienced of Alice in Wonderland did indeed miss a few things. But why was that? Because of the poetry moments. So something to something to keep in mind, I suppose. Um, I'll say that recently, I really, really enjoyed Dune. Um, really refreshing. Uh, I I sort of like left sci-fi literature behind a while ago for a number of reasons. A lot of it was really meandering. Um, I was starting to get really into writing specifically for TV. Um, and, uh, so I was just reading less of it, but it was also exhausting. I, I've mentioned it on stream before. I, I, I don't like how they describe female characters. There, there's so much in sci-fi and it's, it's certainly not isolated to sci-fi literature, but, um, so much sci-fi writing is just very, very, uh, very male gaze kind of stuff. And, uh, I really enjoyed Dune because not only were the characters incredible, characters of all genders, but also I didn't have to hear about it. 
didn't have to hear about how how attractive the uh, the author found that character. All right. Nat Grace says, I read eight books this month. Very proud of myself. As well you should be, Nat Grace. That is a, that's a hot number for a month. What are you reading? What's on your shelf this month, Nat Grace? Missy says, East of Eden is one of my favorites. I have not read that one. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to go take a look. Let me, as a matter of fact, let me look right now. I'm not going <laughs> to, I almost said I'm not going to read it right now, but yeah, of course, Sam. Let me see. I'm trying to remember because I, I know I've I've read about this book. I can't remember precisely what it's about though. Um, two brothers in the 1910s, California, struggle to maintain their strict Bible-toting father's favor as an old secret about their absent mother comes to light. Interesting. Okay, it sounds roughly familiar. I've been watching a series called Bloodlines recently. Um, season one is incredible. Season two. I uh, have not gotten very far in. Some of the some of the sort of situation has changed as it does, but it changed in a way that I'm just like, eh, I don't know. I feel like it's going to lose some of the stuff from from uh, the first uh, the first season. Oxy is wondering, are you reading Trials of Apollo? Well, uh, Oxy, after every series, uh, I should say, late in every series, we take a new vote over in our Discord. Um, if y'all are looking for the Discord, you can use the links command to pull that up. L i n k t r dot e e slash sidecar stories link tree slash sidecar stories. Um, we take a vote over there, and that will help us decide what series we are going to be reading next. Um, so basically. As we are on the last book of this, you can anticipate toward the beginning of that last book, I'll start to take suggestions in a designated channel over there, and then toward the end of that book, we'll be taking a vote. Gotta sneeze. <laughs> and my mouse settings aren't correct, so y'all got to hear that. Cool. Well, just the one this time, I guess. Let me see. Uh, Nat Grace says, lots of contemporary romance. Most recent one was the cheat sheet. I see. I see. Um, I just played in a one-shot last night um, with uh, Chaotic Darby. We've raided over to uh, her channel, uh, like, a number of times now. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was really cool to play with a different crew than I have for a long time. It's been a long, long time since I just jumped in with a group, and within, like, ten minutes, it felt like a home game. Very, very comfortable. We all got in a great rhythm together. It was super cool, but uh, my character in that was an old, old dragonborn who uh, writes sort of occult horror novels, um, but got his start writing romance novels, so I'll have to check out the cheat sheet and see if there's any character inspiration there. <laughs> Uh, Vance's Live says, I love Sanderson stuff. His Steelheart stuff is some of my favorites, but my favorite book ever, probably High Fidelity by Nick Hornby. And that is kind of funny the way that it works, isn't it? Um, the, uh, so sometimes, like, my favorite authors are not necessarily the author of my absolute favorite book. Um, uh, like, I would say it happens more often in other media, but yeah, sometimes my absolute favorite of something, my favorite single favorite, um, is not by the same person or people as... The, you know, the, the one where it's like, hey, if this person makes something, I know I'm going to watch it. Or I know I'm going to read it. What have you. Folks, are you ready? Are you ready for a finale? That's my question. Why did I pick that? Why is that the tune that I picked? That's not it. Um, as a matter of fact, that, that, that has auspicious beginnings written all over it, if anything. Folks, today we are going to be reading the final chapters of the very first book of the Hunger Games series. 
Now, as I was doing my prep for this, it's an exciting end to a book. I'm going to tell you all that much. But as I was prepping my way through the final chapter, the more I was working, the more I sort of like progressed through the chapter, the more I was like, I am so excited to read the next book of this one. It's funny because with Harry Potter, I've always been so familiar with it. Um, I, I had already read it. I'd already read it out loud, in fact, before I ever did that on stream. Um, but with this one, this is A, the first time I've ever read it out loud, and B, it's not the first time I've ever read it, but it's like the, the second and a half time I've ever read it. Um, I read through it once. I think I started to read it through it again. I you know, got busy or whatever, but... Um, <clears throat> Sparkle up good. Speaking of getting busy, um, the uh, th this series is not so, so familiar to me that I'm like, oh yeah, I remember exactly how the first half of the next book goes. Um, I remember the rough structure of it. I remember what happens. And then, frankly, the third book starts to get very fuzzy for me. So I'm excited. I'm excited to see where precisely this goes next. There are lots of little details I didn't pick up on before, and so I'm really excited to see how it goes. Uh, Spark of Lovegood, for everyone's reference, just so that comment didn't come way out of left field, says, I just finished reading the Mortal Instruments series, and I'm really glad we didn't choose that as one of our books to read. Lots of steamy scenes. I think it would have been weird to hear Sam read about that to me. Um, and uh, Jem says, poor Sam. No, let's keep Sam safe in our picture ears. <laughs> I mean, frankly, I'm not opposed to it. I think there's a lot of like, um, I, I am one of the folks who is in the camp of trying to make my way out of that strange thing that we as a Western audience have gotten so accustomed to. And I especially mean an American Western audience, because I think it's more prevalent over here. The further West you go, the, the, the more I think it pops up, at least in the overall sphere of what we call Western civilization. Basically, violence versus... Um, uh, uh, eroticism, anything like that. I think we have fallen on the wrong side of that. We talk plenty about violence, and we consider that a very valid uh, uh, thing to discuss, uh, especially with like uh, young folks, young impressionable folks. And I think we've gotten in this weird place where we have considered that to be the big. Uh, we, we've we've considered um, sort of er eroticism uh, and uh, sex to be like things that. No, 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 no. We wait, 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 wait. We don't, we don't talk about that until much later in life. Uh, and then sometimes too late. Uh, if you ask me, these things should be flipped around. I think we should be much more cautious about the way we discuss violence. And uh, much more, I mean, still, still intentional, but much less, um, much less repressed in the way that we talk about sex and physicality. Because I think it puts a lot of people sort of living their lives uh, with things that they are inevitably going to deal with um, totally unprepared. Anyway, there's that. Uh, Van Saves Lives. No, not that one, though. Not that one is the thing that I probably won't do is Fifty Shades of Sam. Especially not Fifty Shades of Sam. <laughs> but not Fifty Shades of Grey either. Uh, Mortal says, Canadian here, and honestly, we try to avoid both. Yeah, I, got, I get that sense that, that Canada of, of, let's see, of... Of any, ah, I don't know. I was about to make a big generalization, and I don't know enough about it to to make it. So I'm not gonna, not gonna do it. <laughs> All right, folks. A bit of review. 
chapters 22, 23, and 24. The penultimate episode of this uh, series. Chapters 22, 23, 24. Chapter 22 starts with uh, rain. And uh, basically Katniss wakes up to find that her mission to save PETA has succeeded. Um, Cato and Thresh are kind of at each other's throats somewhere off in the distance close to the cornucopia. And she did it. She and PETA they're going to make it to the end, okay? Will they make it through the end? Well, we're not sure yet. We're not even sure when the end is going to come. Um, in this chapter 22, we continue with this sort of ruse, you might say, and yet it seems very real for Peta, and it feels more real all the time for Katniss. Um, this romance story that they are crafting with one another, it feels more real all the time, and I mean, as someone who has like, there's a there's a concept of called a it's called a showmance. Um, I used to do a decent bit of theater, uh, but I think any time you get into situations with people who you have the potential to be attracted to, um, and you do a lot of like really close quarters, um, especially like high dedication or high intensity activity, there is a tendency to sort of like find your way into just feeling really bonded with a person, which oftentimes can sort of manifest in feelings of romance. In this situation, it to me is so, so very likely that these two people who are going through this this, this incredibly stressful time, they're starting to form a much stronger bond than they otherwise would have, and whether or not that feels like romance just sort of depends on how the chips fall. Chapter 23. They have got a little bit of food sent in by... Um, by Hamish, some some good sponsorships appear to have gone into this one, um, and this is when they sort of start to realize it's been too quiet for too long. Um, Thresh does die. Thresh has been killed, which means it is just the two of them and Cato left in the arena. That's where it puts them, but they realize it's been too long, it's been too quiet, and any moment now, the... The game makers are going to do something to sort of push them together, and so they figure rather than rather than waiting for it, they're going to move into the center and make this thing end. Um, in addition, uh, the game makers have cut off their supply of water, so they figure better to move toward the end rather than let the end game find them, which I think is smart. Um, they find themselves at the cornucopia, and as they are waiting for Cato doesn't seem to be showing. It's quiet. It's quiet. And then there he is. He's charging toward them from across this field out of the tree line, charging toward them, charging past them. And in a moment, we discover why. He's being chased and chased by creatures who really, they don't belong in this world or any. Please enjoy the finale of The Hunger Games, book one.
Chapter 25. Mutations. No question about it. I've never seen these mutts, but they're no natural-born animals. They resemble huge wolves, but what wolf lands and then balances so easily on its hind legs? What wolf waves the rest of the pack forward with its front paw as though it had a wrist? These things I can see at a distance. Up close, I'm sure their more menacing attributes will be revealed. Cato has made a beeline for the cornucopia, and without question, I follow him. If he thinks it's the safest place, who am I to argue? Besides, even if I could make it to the trees, it would be impossible for Peta to outrun them on that leg. Peta, my hands have just landed on the metal at the pointed tail of the cornucopia when I remember I'm part of a team. He's about fifteen yards behind me, hobbling as fast as he can, but the mutts are closing in on him fast. I send an arrow into the pack and one goes down, but there are plenty more to take its place. Peter's waving me up the horn. Go! Catless! Go! He's right. I can't protect either of us from the ground. I start climbing, scaling the cornucopia on my hands and feet. The pure gold surface has been designed to resemble the woven horn that we fill at the harvest, so there are little ridges and seams to get a decent hold on. But after a day in the arena sun, the metal feels hot enough to blister my hands. Cato lies at his side at the very top of the horn, twenty feet above the ground, gasping to catch his breath as he gags over the edge. Now's my chance to finish him off. I stop midway up the horn and load another arrow, but just as I'm about to let it fly, I hear Peter cry out. I twist around and see he's just reached the tail, and the mutts are right on his heels. Climb! I yell. Peter starts up, hampered not only by his leg, but the knife in his hand. I shoot my arrow down the throat of the first mutt, and it places its paws on the metal. As it dies, the creature lashes out, inadvertently opening gashes on a few of its companions. That's when I look at the claws. Four inches and nearly razor-sharp. Peter reaches my feet, and I grab his arm and pull him along. That's when I remember Cato waiting at the top and whip around, but he's doubled over with cramps and apparently more preoccupied with the mutts than us. He coughs out something unintelligible. The snuffling, growling sound coming from the mutts isn't helping. What? I shout at him. He said, can they claim it? answers Peter, drawing my focus back to the base of the horn. The mutts are beginning to assemble. As they join together, they raise up again and stand easily on their back legs, giving them an eerily human quality. Each has a thick coat, some with fur that's straight and sleek, others curly, and the colors vary from jet black to what I can only describe as blonde. There's something else about them, something that makes the hairs rise up on the back of my neck but I can't put my finger on it. They put their snouts on the horn, sniffing and tasting the metal, scraping paws over the surface and then making high-pitched yipping sounds to one another. This must be how they communicate, because the pack backs up as if to make room. Then one of them, a good-sized mutt with silky waves of blonde fur, takes a running start and leaps onto the horn. Its back legs must be incredibly powerful because it lands a mere ten feet below us, its pink lips pulled back into a snarl. For a moment, it hangs there. And in that moment, I realize what else unsettled me about the mutts. The green eyes glowering at me are unlike any dog or wolf, any canine I've ever seen. They are unmistakably human. 
and that revelation is barely registered when I notice the collar with the number one inlaid with jewels and the whole terrible thing hits me. The blonde hair, the green eyes, the number. It's glimmer. A shriek escapes my lips and I'm having trouble holding the arrow in place. I've been waiting to fire, only too aware of my dwindling supply of arrows, waiting to see if the creatures can, in fact, climb. But now, even though the mutt has begun to slide backward, unable to find any purchase on the metal, even though I can hear the slow screeching of the claws like nails on a blackboard, I fire into its throat. Its body twitches and flops onto the ground with a thud. Katniss? I can feel Peter's grip on my arm. It's her! I get out. Who? asks Peter. My head snaps from side to side as I examine the pack taking in the various sizes and colors. The small one with the red coat and amber eyes. Fox face. And there, the ashen hair and hazel eyes of the boy from District 9 who died as we struggled for the backpack. And worst of all, the smallest mutt with dark, glossy fur, huge brown eyes, and a collar that reads 11 in woven straw. Teeth bared in hatred. Rue. What is it? Godless. Peter shakes my shoulder. It's them. It's all of them. The others. Rue and Foxface. It's the, all the other tributes. I choke out. I hear Peter's gasp of recognition. What did they do to them? You don't think those could be the real eyes? Their eyes are the least of my worries. What about their brains? Have they been given the real tribute's memories? Have they been programmed to hate our faces, particularly because we have survived and they were so callously murdered? And the ones we actually killed? Do they believe they're avenging their own deaths? Before I can get this out, the mutts begin a new assault on the horn. They've split into two groups at the sides of the horn and they're using those powerful hindquarters to launch themselves at us. A pair of teeth ring together just inches from my hand, and then I hear Peter cry out. Feel the yank on his body, the heavy weight of boy and mutt pulling me over to the side. If not for the grip on my arm, he'd be on the ground. But as it is, it takes all my strength to keep us both on the curved back of the horn. And more tributes are coming. Kill it, Peter! Kill it! I'm shouting, and although I can't quite see what's happening, I know he must have stabbed the thing because the pull lessens. I'm able to haul him back onto the horn where we drag ourselves toward the top, where the lesser of two evils awaits. Cato has not yet regained his feet, but his breathing is slowing, and I know soon he'll be recovered enough to come after us, to hurl us over the side to our deaths. I arm my bow, but the arrow ends up taking out a mutt that can only be thresh. Who else could jump so high? I feel a moment's relief because we must finally be up above the mutt line, and I'm just turning back to face Cato when Peter's jerked from my side. I'm sure the pack has got him until his blood splatters my face. Cato stands before me, almost at the lip of the horn, holding Peter in some kind of headlock, cutting off his air. Peter's clawing at Cato's arm, but weakly, as if confused over whether it's more important to breathe or try and stem the gush of blood from the gaping hole a mutt left in his calf. I aim one of my last two arrows at Cato's head, knowing it'll have no effect on his trunk or limbs, which I 
now see her clothed in a skin-tight, flesh-colored mesh, some high-grade body armor from the capital. Was that what was in his pack at the feast? Body armor to defend against my arrows? Well, they neglected to send a face guard. Cato just laughs. Shoot me and he goes down with me. He's right. If I take him out and he falls to the mutts, Peta is sure to die with him. We've reached a stalemate. I can't shoot Cato without killing Peta, too. He can't kill Peta without guaranteeing an arrow in his brain. We stand like statues, both of us seeking an out. My muscles are strained so tightly they feel like they might snap at any moment. My teeth clenched to the breaking point. The mutts go silent, and the only thing I can hear is the blood pounding in my good ear. Peta's lips are turning blue. If I don't do something quickly, he'll die of asphyxiation, and then I'll have lost him, and Cato will probably use his body as a weapon against me. In fact, I'm sure this is Cato's plan, because while he's stopped laughing, his lips set in a triumphant smile. As if in a last-ditch effort, Peter raises his fingers, dripping with blood from his leg, up to Cato's arm. Instead of trying to wrestle his way free... His forefinger veers off and makes a deliberate X on the back of Cato's hand. Cato realizes what this means exactly one second after I do. I can tell by the way the smile drops from his lips, but it's one second too late, because by that time my arrow is piercing his hand. He cries out and reflexively releases Peta, who slams back against him. For a horrible moment, I think they're both going over. I dive forward, just catching hold of Peta as Cato loses his footing on the blood-slick horn and plummets to the ground. We hear him hit, the air leaving his body on impact, and then the mutts attack him. Peta and I hold on to each other, waiting for the cannon, waiting for the competition to finish, waiting to be released. But it doesn't happen. Not yet because this is the climax of the Hunger Games and the audience expects a show. I don't watch, but I can hear the snarls, the growls, the howls of pain from both human and beast as Cato takes on the mutt pack. I can't understand how he can be surviving until I remember the body armor, protecting him from ankle to neck, and I realize what a long night this could be. Cato must have a knife or sword or something too, something he had hidden in his clothes, because on occasion there's a death scream of a mutt, or the sound of metal on metal as the blade collides with the golden horn. The combat moves around the side of the cornucopia, and I know Cato must be attempting one maneuver that could save his life, the one thing, to make his way back around the tail of the horn and rejoin us. But in the end, despite his remarkable strength and speed, he's simply overpowered. I don't know how long it's been, maybe an hour or so, when Cato hits the ground and we hear the mutts dragging him, dragging him back into the cornucopia. Now they'll finish him off, I think, but there's still no cannon. Night falls and the anthem plays, and there's no picture of Cato in the sky, only the faint moans coming through the metal beneath us. The icy air blowing across the plain reminds me that the games are not over, and may not be for who knows how long, and there is still no guarantee of a victor.
I turn my attention to Peta and discover his leg is bleeding as badly as ever. All our supplies, our packs, remain down by the lake where we abandoned them when we fled from the mutts. I have no bandage, nothing to staunch the blood from his calf. Although I'm shaking in the biting wind, I rip my jacket, remove my shirt, and zip back into the jacket as quickly as possible. That brief exposure sets my teeth chattering beyond control. Peter's face is gray in the pale moonlight. I make him lie down before I probe his wound. Warm, slippery blood runs over my fingers. A bandage will not be enough. I've seen my mother tie a tourniquet a handful of times, and I try to replicate it. I cut free a sleeve from my shirt, wrap it twice around his leg just under the knee, and tie a half-knot. I don't have a stick, so I take my remaining arrow and insert it in the knot, twisting it as tightly as I dare. It's risky business. Peter may end up losing his leg, but when I weigh this against him losing his life, what alternative do I have? I bandage the wound with the rest of my shirt and lay down with him. Don't go to sleep, I tell him. I'm not sure if this is exactly medical protocol, but I'm terrified that if he drifts off, he'll never wake again. What are you cold? he asks. He unzips his jacket and I press against him as he fastens it around me. It's a bit warmer, sharing our body heat inside my double layer of jackets, but the night is young. The temperature will continue to drop. Even now I can feel the cornucopia, which burned so when I climbed it, slowly turning to ice. Kato may win this thing yet, I whisper to Peter. Don't you believe it, he says, pulling up my hood, but he's shaking harder than I am. The next hours are the worst in my life, which, if you think about it, is saying something. The cold would be torture enough, but the real nightmare is listening to Cato, moaning, begging, and finally just whimpering as the mutts work away at him. After a very short time, I don't care who he is or what he's done. All I want is for his suffering to end. Why don't they just kill him? I ask Peter. You know why, he says, and pulls me closer to him. And I do. No viewer could turn away from the show now. From the game maker's point of view, this is the final word in entertainment. It goes on... And on, and on, and eventually completely consumes my mind, blocking out memories and hopes of tomorrow, erasing everything but the present, which I begin to believe will never change. There will never be anything but cold and fear, and the agonized sounds of the boy dying in the horn. Peter begins to doze off now. And each time he does, I find myself yelling his name louder and louder, because if he goes and dies on me now, I know I'll go completely insane. He's fighting it, probably more for me than for him, and it's hard because unconsciousness would be its own form of escape. But the adrenaline pumping through my body would never allow me to follow him. So I can't let him go. I just can't. The only indication of the passage of time lies in the heavens the subtle shift of the moon. So Peter begins pointing it out to me, 
insisting I acknowledge its progress, and sometimes, just for a moment, I feel a flicker of hope before the agony of the night engulfs me again. Finally, I hear him whisper that the sun is rising. I open my eyes and find the stars fading into the pale light of dawn. I can see, too, how bloodless Peter's face has become. How little time he has left. And I know I have to get him back to the capital. Still, no cannon is fired. I press my good ear against the horn and can just make out Cato's voice. I think he's close on now. Gatness. Can you shoot him? If he's near the mouth, I might be able to take him out. It would be an act of mercy at this point. My last arrow's in your tourniquet, I say. Make it count, <clears throat> says Peter, unzipping his jacket, letting me loose. So I free the arrow, tying the tourniquet back as tightly as my frozen fingers can manage. I rub my hands together, trying to regain circulation. When I crawl to the lip of the horn and hang over the edge, I feel Peter's hands grip me for support. It takes a few minutes to find Cato in the dim light, in the blood. Then the raw hunk of meat that used to be my enemy makes a sound, and I know where his mouth is. And I think he's trying to say, please. Pity, not vengeance, sends my arrow flying into his skull. Peter pulls me back up, bow in hand, quiver empty. Did you get him? He whispers. The cannon fires in answer. Well then, we won, Katniss, he says hollowly. Hooray for us. I get out, but there's no joy of victory in my voice. A hole opens in the plain, and as if on cue, the remaining mutts bound into it, disappearing as the earth closes above them. We wait for the hovercraft to take Cato's remains, for the trumpets of victory that should follow, but nothing happens. Hey! I shout into the air. What's going on? The only response is the chatter of waking birds. Maybe it's the body. Maybe we have to move away from it. I try to remember. Do you have to distance yourself from the dead tribute on the final kill? My brain is too muddled to be sure, but what else could be the reason for the delay? All right. You think you can make it to the lake? I ask. I think I better try, says Peter. We inch down to the tail of the horn and fall to the ground. If the stiffness in my limbs is this bad, how can Peter even move? I rise first, swinging and bending my arms and legs until I can think of how to help him. Somehow, we make it back to the lake. I scoop up a handful of the cold water for Peter and bring a second to my own lips. A mocking jay gives the long, low whistle, and tears of relief fill my eyes as the hovercraft appears and takes Cato's body away. Now they will take us. Now we can go home. But again, there's no response. What are they waiting for? Says Peter weakly. 
Between the loss of the tourniquet and the effort it took us to get to the lake, his wound has opened up again. I don't know, I say. Whatever the holdup is, I can't watch him lose any more blood. I get up to find a stick, but almost immediately come across the arrow that bounced off Cato's body armor. It'll do as well as the other arrow. As I stoop to pick it up, Claudius Templesmith's voice booms into the arena. Greetings, Greetings to the final to contestants the final of the 74th Hunger Games. 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 The earlier revision has been revoked. revoked. Closer examination of the rule book has disclosed that only one winner may be allowed. Good luck. Good luck. And may the odds be ever in your favor. There's a small burst of static and then nothing more. I stare at Peter in disbelief as the truth sinks in. They never intended to let us both live. This has all been devised by the game makers to guarantee the most dramatic showdown in history. And like a fool, I bought into it. If you think about it, it's not that surprising, he says softly. I watch as he painfully makes it to his feet. And then he's moving toward me, as if in slow motion. His hand is pulling the knife from his belt. Before I'm even aware of my actions, my bow is loaded with the arrow pointed straight at his heart. Peter raises his eyebrows, and I see the knife has already left his hand on its way to the lake, where it splashes into the water. I drop my weapons and take a step back, my face burning in what can only be shame. No. Do it. Peter limps toward me and thrusts the weapon back into my hands. I can't. I won't. Do it. Before they send those mutts back or something. I don't want to die like Kato. Well, then you shoot me, I say furiously, shoving the weapons back at him. You shoot me and you go home and live with it. And I say it. I know death right here, right now, would be the easier of the two. You know I can't, Peter says, discarding the weapons. Fine. Fine. I'll go first anyway. He leans down and rips the bandage off his leg, eliminating the final barrier between his blood and the earth. No, no, you can't kill yourself, I say. I'm on my knees, desperately plastering the bandage back onto his wound. Katniss, it's what I want. You're not leaving me here alone, I say, because if he dies, I'll never go home. Not really. I'll spend the rest of my life in this arena trying to think my way out. Listen, he says, pulling me to my feet. We both know they've got to have a vector. There can only be one of us. Please. Please take it from me. And he goes on about how he loves me. What life would be without me, but I've stopped listening because his previous words are trapped in my head, thrashing desperately around. 
We both know they have to have a victor. Yes, they have to have a victor. Without a victor, the whole thing would blow up in the game makers' faces. They'd have failed the capital. Might possibly even be executed, slowly and painfully, while the cameras broadcast it to every screen in the country. If Peta and I were both to die, or they thought we were, my fingers fumble with the pouch in my belt, freeing it. Peter sees it, and his hands clamp onto my wrist. Oh, no, I won't let you. Trust me, I whisper. He holds my gaze for a long moment and then lets me go. I loosen the top of the pouch and pour a few spoonfuls of berries into his palm. Then I fill my own. On the count of three. Peter nods down and kisses me once. Very gently. The count of three, he says. We stand, our backs pressed together, our empty hands locked tight. Hold them out. Want everyone to see, he says. I spread out my fingers and the dark berries glisten in the sun. I gave Peter's hand one last squeeze as a signal, as a goodbye, and we begin counting. One. Maybe I'm wrong. Two. Maybe they don't care if we both die. Three. It's too late to change my mind. I lift my hand to my mouth, taking one last look at the world. The berries have just passed my lips when the trumpets begin to blare. The frantic voice of Claudius Templesmith shouts above them, Stop! 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 Ladies and gentlemen, I am pleased to present the victors of the 74th Hunger Games, Katniss Everdeen and Peter Malark. I give you the tributes of District 12! Everyone, chapter 24. Oh, excuse me, chapter 25, sorry. Y'all, <laughs> chapter 25. Interesting. Interesting. They were able to do it. They made it out. In spite of the fact that the game runners are trying to make this impossible for them, trying to turn this into some grand showdown between two people who knew that they were going into the arena having to one of them die to letting them think they were going to let one of them make it out in the end Katniss realizes there is only one way this game can end and not for them but for the game makers because even the game makers are 
somewhat trapped by this system. Certainly their participation in it makes them complicit, but they have backed themselves into this incredible corner, wherein if they don't succeed on the the mission statement of this, which is to make a serious impression, uh, both as entertainment and as a warning, if it doesn't make this huge impression, they have failed. And if they fail, they are no longer valuable. And what have we already expressed about this world? Which world am I referring to? The world of Hunger Games or the one that we currently live in? Eh, I'll leave it up to you. But we've already established about this world your value in this world by many is perceived only by what you are able to accomplish. Whether or not you are able to support the aims of whatever busted system exists. So, in this quiet little moment, Katniss and Peeta turn it back on itself. And it seems to work. I'm going to add, by the way, that uh, it's a little bit more fiddly than you would imagine trying to get some of the uh, the sound balance stuff right. But I think I nailed that last moment. <laughs> I'm going to choose to be pretty excited about that. I think I really nailed that one. All right. Jams says, well, they got their impression. Yes, indeed. Certainly a moment that is going to reverberate out. This is, as far as we're aware, the very first Hunger Games that has had multiple victors. What is going to be the significance of this? Clearly, the game makers didn't intend for it to ever be this way. We can be very sure that they knew the moment that they first changed the rules to allow two victors from the same district, we knew they were going to change it back. And so did they. They never intended for this to happen. What happens now? What is the panic happening in that room? Loverly Random says, I love picturing the game makers at that part. Literally frantic. Absolutely. They have, they need to exert so much control here and they've got so much power. And yet at this final moment, when they assume it must be over, right? It, it, we, they're, they're probably already have their champagne poured. And now they're choking on it, spluttering like, what? There's no button I can press to fix this, what they've just done. I got so I got all these buttons here. See, that one does fire. That one makes these horrible hyena creatures come out. There's no button for fix this. Jem says, this is how you cause a rebellion. Stand up and stand together. Absolutely, Gems. Van says, wild to think there are still chapters left. What is gonna come after this? Capital hates rebels. That was about as rebellious as you get. Indeed, quite rebellious. Well. Folks, I am not going to make you wait long. Um, I'm going to do a spot of review. I'm going to say it in English, actually, as well. I'm going to do a spot of review. There we go. I'm going to do a spot of review, and then we are going to move forward into our next chapter. Chapter 26. What's my favorite word? It's the penultimate chapter. <laughs> so, really quick review. Chapter 25, the end of the Hunger Games. The end of the Hunger Games. 74th Annual Hunger Games are over. Um, Kato has been chased out of the woods by these terrible creatures, which Katniss, as uh, she and Peeta follow Kato up on top of the cornucopia, she quickly realizes these are not just strange hyena wolf creatures. These are... These are mutations, or mutts for short. And not only that, but they have been designed to look like the dead tributes from the arena. 
absolutely terrible. Terrible to look at, terrible to have to kill. In the in the melee that ensues up at the top of this cornucopia, as they are barely safe from these mutts up here, but Kato and Katniss and Pia face off. Pita has been wounded. He's bleeding severely from the leg. Kato gets hold of him, and they're at a standoff. Katniss can shoot Kato, but then they'll both, Kato and Pita, topple down and be eaten up by the mutts. Kato can choke Pita out here, but then there's nothing keeping Katniss from getting him with an arrow. They're not that far away. She's not going to miss. And then Pita, with his last ounce of strength, draws a little X on the back of Kato's hand, and Katniss shoots through the hand, hits Pita, but keeps Pita alive. Um, and Kato goes stumbling over the edge uh, down to the mutts below. They take their time with Kato. Hours and hours, in fact. But during these hours, Katniss is just trying to keep Pita alive once again because he's bleeding from his leg, bleeding too much. Eventually, as the sun rises, they are able to... Scoot to the edge. Katniss uses this one final arrow and ends Kato's suffering. The games still haven't ended yet. They think, okay, well, we have to move away from the body so that they can retrieve it. They move away toward the lake. The hovercraft comes down, takes the body away still hasn't ended yet. Katniss has to get Peta to the capital soon, because otherwise he's just simply going to bleed out and she will have lost him all the same. And that's when the announcement comes over. They are revoking their earlier rule change. They've examined the rule books, and it turns out there can only be one victor after all. Peta and Katniss are the only two left. They're expected to kill each other. A very tense moment, but then Peta insists, no, he wants to go. Um, Katniss, shoot me with that bow, and I think Katniss has a very significant moment here where she says, no, absolutely not. You kill me, and then go home and live with it. Because she knows, and, you know, the two of them have essentially all the time in the world here, except for Peta's leg injury. They argue back and forth which one of them should go home, each one saying, no, I will die here and now. Because it'll be easier than going home. And then Katniss has this idea. We talked about it before, so I'm not going to go into it, but Katniss's idea is to take the poisonous berries that Peta accidentally found before. They both take a handful and... They decide the games end with both of them dead or, well, the trumpets blare, Claudius Templesmith's voice loudly proclaims the dual victors of the Hunger Games because they must have a victor. There we go, folks. I hope you are enjoying this book. We now embark on chapter 26, the second to last chapter of this book. I hope you were excited because I certainly am.
Chapter 26. I spew the berries from my mouth, wiping my tongue with the end of my shirt to make sure no juice remains. Peta pulls me to the lake where we both flush out our mouths with water and then collapse into each other's arms. You didn't swallow any? I ask him. He shakes his head. You? I guess I'd be dead now if I did, I say. I can see his lips moving in reply, but I can't hear him over the roar of the crowd in the capital that they're playing over the live speakers. The hovercraft materializes overhead, and two ladders drop. Only there's no way I'm letting go of Peta. I keep one arm around him as I help him up, and we each place a foot on the first rung of the ladder. The electric current freezes us in place, and this time I'm glad, because I'm not really sure Peta can hold on for the whole ride. And since my eyes are looking down, I can see that while our muscles are immobile, nothing is preventing the blood from draining out of Peta's leg. Sure enough, the minute the door closes behind us and the current stops, he slumps to the floor, unconscious. My fingers are still gripping the back of his jacket so tightly that when they take me away, it tears, leaving me with a fistful of black fabric. Doctors in sterile white, masked and gloved, already prepped to operate, go into action. Peter's so pale and still on the silver table. Tubes and wires spring out of him every which way, and for a moment I forget we're out of the games and I see the doctors as just one more threat, one more pack of mutts designed to kill him. Petrified, I lunge for him, but I'm caught and thrust back into another room, and a glass door seals between us. I pound on the glass, screaming my head off. Everyone ignores me except for some capital attendant who appears behind me and offers me a beverage. I slump down to the floor my face against the door, staring uncomprehendingly at the crystal glass in my hand. Icy cold, filled with orange juice, a straw with a frilly white collar. How wrong it looks in my bloody, filthy hand with its dirt-caked nails and scars. My mouth waters at the smell, but I place it carefully on the floor, not trusting anything so clean and pretty. Through the glass, I can see the doctors working feverishly on Peta, their eyebrows creased in concentration. I can see the flow of liquids pumping through the tubes, watch a wall of dials and lights that mean nothing to me. I'm not sure, but I think his heart stops twice. It's like being home again, when they bring in the hopelessly mangled person from the mine explosion, or the woman in her third day of labor, or the famished child struggling against pneumonia, and my mother and Prim, they wear that same look on their faces. Now is the time to run away into the woods, to hide in the trees until the patient is gone, and in another part of the seam, the hammers make the coffin. But I'm held here both by the hovercraft walls and the same force that holds the loved ones of the dying. How often I've seen them, ringed around our kitchen table, and I thought, why don't they leave? Why do they stay and watch? And I know now. It's because you have no choice. I startle when I catch someone staring at me from only a few inches away and I realize it's my own face reflected back in the glass. Wild eyes, hollow cheeks, my hair in a tangled mat, rabid, feral, mad. No wonder everyone's keeping a safe distance from me. 
The next thing I know, we've landed back on the roof of the training center, and they're taking PETA but leaving me behind the door. I start hurling myself against the glass, shrieking, and I think I must catch a glimpse of pink hair. It must be Effie. It has to be Effie coming to my rescue. When the needle jabs me from behind. When I wake, I'm afraid to move at first. The entire ceiling glows with a soft yellow light, allowing me to see that I'm in a room containing just my bed. No doors, no windows are visible. The air smells of something sharp and antiseptic. My right arm has several tubes that extend to the wall behind me. I'm naked, but my bedclothes are soothing against my skin. I tentatively lift my left hand above the cover. Not only has it been scrubbed clean, the nails are filed into perfect ovals. The scars from the burns are less prominent. I touch my cheek, my lips, the puckered scar above my eyebrow, and I'm just running my fingers through my silken hair when I freeze. Apprehensively, I ruffle the hair by my left ear. No, it wasn't an illusion. I can hear again. I try and sit up, but some sort of wide restraining band around my waist keeps me from rising more than a few inches. The physical confinement makes me panic, and I'm trying to pull myself up and wriggle my hips through the band when a portion of the wall slides open, and in steps the red-headed Avox girl carrying a tray. The sight of her calms me down, and I stop trying to escape. I want to ask her a million questions, but I'm afraid any familiarity would cause her harm. Obviously, I'm being closely monitored. She sets the tray across my thighs and presses something that raises me into a sitting position. While she adjusts my pillows, I risk one question. I say it out loud, as clearly as my rusty voice will allow, so nothing will seem secretive. Did Peter make it? She gives me a nod, and as she slips a spoon into my hand, I feel the pressure of friendship. I guess she did not wish me dead after all. And Peter has made it. Of course he did, with all their expensive equipment here. Still... I hadn't been sure until now. As the Avox leaves, the door closes noiselessly after her, and I turn hungrily to the tray. A bowl of clear broth, a small serving of applesauce, and a glass of water. This is it, I think grouchily. Shouldn't my homecoming dinner be a little bit more spectacular? But I find it's an effort to finish the spare meal before me. My stomach seems to have shrunk to the size of a chestnut, and I have to wonder how long I've been out because I had no trouble eating a fairly sizable breakfast the last morning in the arena. There was usually a lag of a few days between the end of the competition and the presentation of the victor so that they can put the starving, wounded mess of a person back together again. Somewhere, Cinna and Portia will be creating our wardrobes for the public appearances. Hamish and Effie will be arranging the banquet for our sponsors, reviewing the questions for our final interviews. Back home, District 12 is probably in chaos as they try to organize the homecoming celebrations for Peta and me, given that the last one was close to 30 years ago. Home. Prim and my mother. Gail. Even the thought of Prim's scruffy old cat makes me smile. Soon, I will be home. I want to get out of this bed. To see Peta and Cinna, to find out more about what's been going on. And why shouldn't I? I feel fine. But as I start to work my way out of the bed, I feel a cold liquid seeping into my vein from one of the tubes and almost immediately lose consciousness. 
This happens on and off for an indeterminate amount of time. My waking, eating, and even though I resist the impulse to try and escape the bed, being knocked out again. I seem to be in a strange, continual twilight. Only a few things register. The red-headed Avox girl has not returned since defeating. My scars are disappearing, and... Do I imagine it? Or do I hear a man's voice yelling? Not in the capital accent, but in the rougher cadences of home. And I can't help having a vague, comforting feeling that someone is looking out for me. Then finally the time arrives when I come to and there's nothing plugged into my arm. The restraint around my middle has been removed and I'm free to move about. I start to sit up, but I'm arrested by the sight of my hands. The skin's perfect. Smooth and glowing. Not only are the scars from the arena gone, but those accumulated over years of hunting have vanished without a trace. My forehead feels like satin, and when I try to find the burn on my calf, there's nothing. I slip my legs out of bed, nervous about how they will bear my weight, and find them strong and steady. Lying at the foot of the bed is an outfit that makes me flinch. It's what all of us tributes wore in the arena. I stare at it as if it had teeth until I remember that, of course, this is what I will wear to greet my team. I'm dressed in less than a minute, and fidgeting in front of the wall where I know there's a door even if I can't see it, when suddenly it slides open. I step into a wide, deserted hall that appears to have no other doors on it, but it must. And behind one of them must be Peta. Now that I'm conscious and moving, I'm growing more and more anxious about him. He must be all right, or the Avox girl wouldn't have said so. But I need to see him for myself. Peter, I call out, since there's no one else to ask. I hear my name in response, but it's not his voice. It's a voice that provokes first irritation and then eagerness. Effie. I turn and see them all waiting in a big chamber at the end of the hall. Effie, Hamish, and Cinna. My feet take off without hesitation. Maybe a victor should show more restraint, more superiority, especially when she knows this will be on tape, but I don't care. I run for them and surprise even myself when I launch into Hamish's arms first. Then he whispers into my ear, Nice job, sweetheart. It doesn't sound sarcastic. Effie's somewhat teary and keeps patting my hair and talking about how she told everyone we were pearls. Sinner just hugs me tight and doesn't say anything. Then I notice Portia is absent, and I get a bad feeling. Where's Portia? Is she with Peter? He's all right, isn't he? I mean, he's alive? I blurt out. He's fine. Only they want to do your reunion live on air at the ceremony, says Hamish. Oh, that's all, I say. The awful moment of thinking Peter is dead again passes. I guess I'd want to see that myself. Go on with Senna. He's got to get you ready, says Hamish. It's a relief to be alone with Senna. To feel his protective arm around my shoulders as he guides me away from the cameras. Down a few passages into an elevator that leads to the lobby of the training center. The hospital, then, is far underground, even beneath the gym where the tributes practiced tying knots and throwing spears. The windows of the lobby are darkened, and a handful of guards stand on duty. No one else is here to see us cross to the tribute elevator. 
our footsteps echo in the emptiness. And when we ride up to the twelfth floor, the faces of all the tributes who will never return flash across my mind. And there's a heavy, tight place in my chest. When the elevator doors open up, Vinia, Flavius, and Octavia engulf me, talking so quickly and ecstatically I can't make out their words. The sentiment is clear, though. They are truly thrilled to see me, and I'm happy to see them too. Although, not like I was to see Cinna. It's more in the way one might be glad to see an affectionate trio of pets at the end of a particularly difficult day. They sweep me into the dining room and I get a real meal. Roast beef and peas and soft rolls, although my portions are still being strictly controlled, because when I ask for seconds, I'm refused. No, 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 they don't want it all coming back up on the stage, says Octavia, but she secretly slips me an extra roll under the table to let me know she's on my side. We go back to my room and Cinna disappears for a while as my prep team gets me ready. Oh, they did a full body polish on you, says Flavius enviously. Not a flaw left in your skin. But when I look at my naked body in the mirror, all I can see is how skinny I am. I mean, I'm sure I was worse when I came out of the arena, but I can easily count my ribs. They take care of the shower setting for me. And they go to work on my hair, nails, and makeup when I'm done. They chatter so continuously I barely have to reply, which is good, since I don't feel very talkative. It's funny, because even though they're rattling on about the games, it's all about where they were, or what they were doing, or how they felt when a specific event occurred. I was still in bed! I just had my eyebrows dyed. I swear I nearly fainted. Everything is about them. Not about the dying boys and girls in the arena. We don't wallow around in the games this way in District 12. We grit our teeth and watch because we must and try to get back to business as soon as possible when they're over. To keep from hitting the prep team, I effectively tune out most of what they're saying. Cinna comes in with what appears to be an unassuming yellow dress across his arms. Have you given up on the whole girl on fire thing? I ask. You tell me, he says, and slips it over my head. I immediately notice the padding over my breasts, adding curves that hunger has stolen from my body. My hands go to my chest and I frown. I know, says Cinna before I can object, but the game makers wanted to alter you surgically. Hamish had a huge fight with them over it. This was the compromise. He stops me before I can look at my reflection. Wait. Don't forget the shoes. Vinya helps me into a pair of flat leather sandals, and I turn to the mirror. I am still the girl on fire. The sheer fabric softly glows. Even the slightest movement in the air sends a ripple up my body. By comparison, the chariot costume seems garish, the interview dress too contrived. In this dress, I give the illusion of wearing candlelight. What do you think? asks Sinna. I think it's the best one yet, I say. When I manage to pull my eyes away from the flickering fabric, I'm in for something of a shock. My hair is loose, held back by a simple hairband. The makeup rounds and fills out the sharp angles of my face. A clear polish coats my nails. The sleeveless dress is gathered at my ribs, not my waist. 
largely eliminating any help the padding would have given my figure. The hem falls just to my knees. Without heels, you can see my true stature. I look, very simply, like a girl. A young one. Fourteen at most. Innocent and harmless. Yes, it is shocking what Cinna has pulled off when you remember I've just won the games. This is a very calculated look. Nothing Cinna designs is arbitrary. I bite my lip, trying to figure out his motivation. I thought it'd be something more... sophisticated-looking, I say. I thought Peter would like this better, he answers carefully. Peter... No, it's not about PETA. It's about the capital and the game-makers and the audience. Although I do not yet understand Sinna's design, it's a reminder that the games are not quite finished. And beneath his benign reply, I sense a warning. Of something he can't mention even in front of his own team. We take the elevator to the level where we trained. It's customary for the victor and his or her support team to rise from beneath the stage... First, the prep team, followed by the escort, the stylist, the mentor, and finally, the victor. Only this year, with two victors who share both an escort and a mentor, the whole thing has to be rethought. I find myself in a poorly lit area under the stage. A brand new metal plate has been installed to transport me upward. You can still see small piles of sawdust. Smell fresh paint. Cinna and the rest of the prep team peel off to change into their own costumes and take their positions, leaving me alone. In the gloom, I see a makeshift wall about ten yards away and assume Peter's behind it. The rumbling of the crowd is loud, so I don't notice Hamish until he touches my shoulder. I spring away, startled. Still half in the arena, I guess. Easy. It's just me. Let's have a look at you, Hamish says. I hold out my arms and turn once. It's good enough. It's not much of a compliment. But what? I say. Hamish's eyes shift around my musty-looking space, and he seems to make a decision. But nothing. What about a hug for good luck? Okay, that's an odd request from Hamish, but after all, we are victors. Maybe a hug for luck is in order. Only, when I put my arms around his neck, I find myself trapped in his embrace. He begins talking, very fast, very quietly in my ear, my hair concealing his lips. Listen up, you're in trouble. Word in the capital is that they're furious that you showed them up in the arena. The only thing they can't stand is being laughed at, and they're the joke of Panem, says Hamish. I feel dread coursing through me now, but I laugh as though Hamish has said something completely delightful, because nothing is covering my mouth. So, what? Your only defense can be that you are so madly in love that you aren't responsible for your actions. Hamish pulls back and adjusts my hairband. You got it, sweetheart. You could be talking about anything now. Got it, I say. Did you tell Peter about this? I don't have to, says Hamish. He's already there. But you think I'm not, I say taking the opportunity to straighten a bright red bow tie Cinna must have wrestled him into. Since when does it matter what I think? says Hamish. Better take our places. He leads me to the metal circle. This is your night, sweetheart. 
Enjoy it. He kisses me on the forehead and disappears into the gloom. I tug on my skirt, willing it to be longer, wanting it to cover my knocking knees. Then I realize it's pointless. My whole body is shaking like a leaf. Hopefully it will be put down to excitement. After all, it's my night. The damp, moldy smell beneath the stage threatens to choke me. A cold, clammy sweat breaks out on my skin, and I can't rid myself of the feeling that the boards above my head are about to collapse, to bury me under the rubble. When I left the arena, when the trumpets blared, I was supposed to be safe. From then on, for the rest of my life, but what if... But if what Hamish says is true, and he's got no reason to lie, I've never been in such a dangerous place in my life. It's so much worse than being hunted in the arena. There, I could only die, end of story. But out here, Prim, my mother, Gail, the people of District 12, everyone I care about back home could be punished if I can't pull off the girl-driven, crazy-by-love scenario Hamish has suggested. So I still have a chance. Funny, in the arena, when I poured out those berries, I was only thinking about smarting the game makers, not how my actions would reflect on the capital. But the Hunger Games are their weapon, and you are not supposed to be able to defeat it. So now the capital will act as if they've been in control the whole time, as if they orchestrated the whole event, right down to the double suicide. But that will only work if I play along with them. And Peta. Peta will suffer, too, if this goes wrong. But what was it Hamish had said when I asked if he had told Peta about the situation? That he had to pretend to be desperately in love. Don't have to. He's already there. Already thinking ahead of me in the games again, and well aware of the danger that we're in. Or already desperately in love? I don't know. I haven't even begun to separate out my feelings about Peta. It's too complicated. What I did is part of the games, as opposed to what I did out of anger at the Capitol, or because of how it would be viewed back in District 12, or simply because I thought it was the only decent thing to do, or what I did because I cared about him. These are questions to be unraveled back home, in the peace and quiet of the woods when no one is watching. Not here with every eye upon me, but I don't have that luxury for who knows how long. And right now, the most dangerous part of the Hunger Games is about to begin. Just taking a look over at chat. Good Courage says, I especially love Billy Connolly with the flu playing Hey Mitch here. So let's see. How do I... How do I ban... How do I ban Good Courage? <laughs> no, that's pretty accurate, as a matter of fact. Um, I would say, yeah, pretty pretty spot-on assessment. There's a lot of Billy Connolly in there, which I haven't even I hadn't even sort of fully processed myself but yeah that's that's roundabout who it is um hey folks 
I hope you were enjoying thus far. Uh, Nat says, I love how they describe her dress and appearance here. Yeah, absolutely. And it's especially good because, you know, I was talking about sci-fi stories earlier on. It's not just for the sake of like, oh, here's how they look. and Here's how their body looks. No, this is part of the story. This is an important part of the story. Um, um, I believe uh, Gems may have been talking about it as well, just in general about uh, literature and how if there's going to be violence or if there's going to be, uh, you know, any sort of like physicality discussion. Oh no, <laughs> they're coming after me. I'm, I'm talking about physicality. Um, uh, it, it should be tied in with the story, right? If, it, if it's in the story, it should have a purpose there. And I, I think this is hugely significant, right? It is talking about essentially, they've done this horrible, terrible thing. You know, it, they, it, it is really an awful thing that they've put together, right? Um, it is a a horrible uh, celebration of violence weaponized as an opportunity for, uh, for for the capital to exert their control. It's a terrible, terrible thing. But they dress it up. They dress it up. And nowhere is that sort of more, uh, more obvious than what they do to Katniss, right? They send Katniss in. They put Katniss's, it is, it is Katniss who goes through these things, right? It is Katniss with the scars to show what she went through. Scars and burns and uh, uh, lost weight of the hunger and the stress. It's Katniss who suffers, but they, they dress it up. So they, they, they're, they're so careful about all the little details they put into Katniss and, um, it's amazing how much Katniss is used here. How much, how many different efforts, how many people are trying to tell a message with what she looks like, right? Because the capital has to say one thing. They're the ones who are removing the burns, removing the 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 scars on the hands, right? Because they need this, they need this this champion that they can tout around and as part of the show, right? And then Cinna has this different image that he's trying to convey with her something quiet or something more demure something that Katniss doesn't fully understand yet we will once we get into the next chapter this is all sorts of folks who are trying to put messages out there trying to some of these messages even sort of at war with one another simply using the way that Katniss looks so yes Natalie, I'm very much with you. This uh, this idea of how Katniss has been described to look and why she looks that way, super important to the series, and I'm a huge fan of what was done here. Absolutely. Mortal says, I've been lurking because my mom has demanded I clean part of the house. I gotcha. Good luck, Mortal. Um... <laughs> uh, yeah, Good Courage says, Shiny happy victors holding hands. Right? That's the image that they want to project, right? We did this grand and terrible thing, but don't hate us because, oh, look at him. Look at him. Oh, aren't they cute? Oh, look at him. OxySwift is wondering how to find the Discord. Uh, you can use the links command at any time. That will bring up the link tree, and the link tree is the links to everything. To the Discord, to everything that's out there. So if you want to find a link to share around with folks, link to follow to Discord or past episodes or what have you, that is the link to pop up. That is the link to follow. Uh, Linktree slash sidecar stories, L-I-N-K-T-R dot 
ee slash sidecar stories. There we go. Sapphire Lady says, poor Katniss, it's never over for her. It seems that way, doesn't it? And once again, I will remind all of us that this is, this is you know, kind of an issue of formatting, right? There are plenty of, of writers who would have chosen to try a different method. They would have chosen to say, okay, I'm going to have the culmination of this story be the winning of the games themselves, right? But based on the fact that this is not the end of the story, based on the fact that she's right now describing how she's going into the most dangerous time, I think I added an extra T on there. Ignore that T. The T should be silent. <laughs> um, we can sort of discern from that the violence in the arena is not really what this series is about, is it? It's not about uh, a bunch of kids doing doing cool fights in the arena, doing cool cool bow and arrow stunts, some some real Legolas stuff, riding shields down staircases. It's not. It's about a lot more than that. It's about the oppression of this system and what it does to people and to people's relationships. I guess what it does to people on three scales, right? The 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 scale of a person uh, and their sort of relationship with themselves, what what this system does to that relationship, what this system does to the relationship between a person and the people immediately around them, um, you know, the people that they know personally, and what this system does to a community at large, right? These entire districts with thousands of people. Yeah, Natalie Grace, it's about violence outside, and um, I am I'm hesitant. Um, to call certain things violent. Now, I am very, very aware that I am one of, I am, boy, other than the fact that I'm bisexual, like, I can't think of a lot of ways in which I am the least, uh, least victim of prejudice uh, <laughs> of, of any demographic. White, uh, in a, in a relationship with a woman, um, uh, male, like so, so many elements of, of me are are not part of minorities that have been, uh, frankly, stomped on for, for some of these things. So when I say I want to be careful about the use of the word violence to describe a wide set of actions versus a narrow set of actions, I think it's important uh, and I think it has been really detrimental to sort of lose track of what certain words actually mean because then they're really easy to refute. I, I, I'm not an expert on this, and frankly, I have not done so much study of this that I can even confidently say I know the right way. But, but, this discussion of violence outside the arena, um, I think there is there is a definition of violence, which includes a, uh, well, so so there's the definition of violence that we all know, right? The, the, the literal sort of physical violence, but there are, uh, there is an emerging definition of violence as well, which includes things uh, like uh, aggressions, um, uh, things that perpetuate uh, prejudices, things that perpetuate harmful systems. These have been sort of lumped into that word violence. Again, I'm not sure if that has, if that particular element has been super positive for trying to have meaningful discussions about it, but I certainly understand it is their actions which, in the end, do contribute toward violence. Or, if I'm going to pronounce it correctly, do contribute toward violence. Um, so yeah, harm rather than violence. Uh, Natalie says many things uh, are or can be violent, even if they aren't the types that draw blood or break bones. Yeah, like these. this is kind of what I'm talking about. This is a, a newer 
portion of the definition of violence. Um, uh, but it, it certainly exists, regardless of, regardless of what it's called, um, whether one becomes a bit semantically picky like me, because, like I said, I am, I, I very much acknowledge this stuff exists. It's real in the world, and we had a conversation recently about um, stereotypes in The Lord of the Rings, right? Um, and, and Sapphire Lady's kind of hit it here. Violence begins in the mind. Um, that's no joke. And I think the, um, the, the discussion that we had about the Lord of the Rings was the same one that we had when we were reading the Hobbit, just in terms of like when people are, when, when, when we accept in, in literature or in entertainment, especially is insidious, uh, when we accept descriptions of people that are reductive, um, that contribute to a, a mindset of, yeah, some people are just evil, or some people are just less than, or some people aren't quite people. When we accept that, even if it is like, oh yeah, it's you know, it was just it was an old timey thing. It's just you know, like we can we can say goblins, goblins aren't real. We can just say like, yeah, all goblins are evil, and then and then it's it's fun, right? Because then we can go in and tell these stories about like, oh yeah, we know goblins are bad, so it's fine if we just like you know, lopping heads off all the time. Go in, raid the goblin village, take everything what they've got, burn down the huts, right? That is. Is is that violence to to read that and not uh, not examine those uh, those, those uh, sort of undercurrents of, of violence? Bio uh, what is it? Bioessentialism um, is that violence? Well, maybe not on its own. Certainly not in the classical definition. But the idea that violence starts in the mind, I think, is very accurate. The more that these things go unexamined, and I would say, if we look around at the world right now. All evidence says humans are not Humans have not been good at that sort of examination. We have not been good about saying to ourselves, like, "Okay, this is this is a this is a sort of undercurrent in this story, which should not apply anywhere else in my life." Humans have proved that they are not good at that. It must be examined. It must be it must be considered, and it must be, frankly, identified as something negative and harmful and if it's not it progresses and it progresses and somewhere in there it becomes actual violence it certainly becomes actual harm and sort of i i, I want to very much acknowledge that all along that spectrum there are there's massive amounts of harm being done but ultimately yes this this story, as we are looking at how it's formatted, as we're looking at how this could end and be, like I said, a cool story about a girl doing flips with a bow and arrow. But that's not what it's about. It's about violence outside the arena. Everybody, we've got one more chapter tonight. The final chapter of this book. Next week, I fully intend, we are going to roll right into book two. Um, if you want to find out more about Sidecar Stories, my name is Sam, this is Sidecar Stories, and of course, this is Thursday. This is our flying sidecar night, a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. Right now, reading The Hunger Games, end of book one, beginning book two next week. Uh, I stream Tuesdays and Wednesdays as well. Tuesdays is on a bit of a hiatus, but uh, I think I'm officially able to end that hiatus very soon, so I would say maybe one more week, and then we're getting into uh, Sherlock Holmes. Wednesdays, side cannons! Our tabletop RPG wing, we are having a ton of fun. We are officially at Castle Vesperal, and if you want to know more about that, if you want to become a, a student there, 
Come hang out on Wednesdays, noon Pacific time. Uh, and of course, you can find me here 4 p.m. Pacific time on Thursdays for Flying Sidecar. I will see you all in five minutes. I'm going to go take a quick break, refill my water, etc. Cheddar break question. Cheddar break question. As they leave the arena, as they leave the capital, what are the greatest threats that they face? There's our question. I will see you in five minutes. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone. How do you do? Welcome back. It's good to see you all. I hope you're all having a fine, fine day. I hope the break has gone well. And because I ran a little bit long, I think it's about time we jump on in. I want to talk about the chatter break question. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. I, what, uh, so the Chatterbrick question was, what threats are awaiting Katniss when she arrives back, uh, basically when she leaves the capital? What kind of threats are waiting for her there? Um, Sparkle Lovegood says, well, they face being watched like a hawk now, and that endangers their family and forces them to keep up the love story. Indeed. Jem says, I want to know how other friends' reactions are to this love story. His name is slipping. Gale. Indeed. Indeed, indeed. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Sparkle love good. Hemsworth. Uh, Mortal says, I liked Gale in this book. The other two, not so much. Natalie says, I never liked Gale in the books. Always felt off to me. Um, I never felt like Katniss had genuine romantic feelings for him. Um, uh, even in this book, Gale feels like he just doesn't want to share Katniss. I think Katniss just doesn't want to lose anyone else in her world. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, let's see. Um, Jem says yes, because he definitely is in love with her and would have clearly won had uh, had he said something before she left. I didn't really like... Uh, this is Jem uh, says, I didn't really like Gail so much after this book either, but spoilers. I see. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Sparkle Lovegood says, I really like the books better, as is the usual case, but what really makes the difference to me with this book is how most of the books, uh, how most of the book is in her head. They do a good job of portraying things, but the book is better. Indeed. Um, yeah, the, 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 the time that we spend in Katniss's head is really valuable here. Um, and it's something that, you know, as we've, as we've talked about, Many other genres don't do it quite as well. Uh, many other mediums, I should say. Because you can do some things with voiceover, but it doesn't work in quite the same way. It doesn't feel like the same window to the soul. It feels, uh, I mean, oftentimes just depending on like the tone or whatever, or the editing that they take, a lot of times it can feel really, really just sort of trite or contrived. Um, basically, it doesn't hit the same. <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. All right. All right, let me see. Let me see. Yeah, a lot of a lot of discussion about Gale, and I think these relationships, you know, it's it's not so much a like threat to safety uh, as you know, some of the other things that we we might discuss, but certainly her relationships are going to change drastically. Um, but of course, we are right here before the end. We're going to be able to t talk about that a lot more in coming books. So everyone, thank you so much for joining me. A bit of review for those of us who are just joining. Uh, chapters 
25 and 26. Chapter 25, the end of the Hunger Games. Katniss and Peeta have a showdown with Cato on top of the uh, cornucopia. They manage to win, but that is when the game makers say, actually, we're changing the rules back to how they were originally. We can only have one victor. Good luck, have fun. Katniss decides to subvert this and goes ahead, tries to turn it on its head, says, well, they have to have a victor. Otherwise, the game makers are in big, big trouble. And now... They've got these. Uh, they've got these poisonous berries. They've had these for a little while in a little in a little pouch. They each take a handful, and they're determined they're going to go out together, or they're going to go out together. They're about to take these berries when the game makers announce. Actually, you know what? We've got two victors. Let me introduce uh, Katniss and Peeta, the victors from District Twelve. Good luck. Good luck, everybody. And the games are over, just like that. Peta is pretty viciously wounded um, in his leg. And Katniss, over the course of Chapter 26, hasn't really been allowed to interact with him very much. Um, she tries to go and find him. She tries to see him. But uh, it seems like they sort of... Uh, the the game makers, the people who are organizing the various events here, want their big reunion to be on camera. Um, and they're about to have it. This is going to be the first time that they've really, really seen each other since the arena. Um... But Katniss gets a warning before she goes out on stage. She's been finding a little odd um, that, uh, you know, she seems to be being watched really closely. Uh, and especially that Cinna seems to have put together an outfit that is really kind of contrary to the, the emotions of power that they were trying to project before. Instead, now she seems kind of demure, sort of quiet, just a girl, 14 years old, harmless. Why is that? Hamish illuminates somewhat. Turns out the capital is very, very unhappy with the way that this ended. They, there's one thing they don't like. It's being laughed at. And right now all of Pan Am is sort of laughing because Katniss and Peeta got one up on the capital. And that's where we are. Folks, I hope you will enjoy this final chapter of The Hunger Games, book one. Thank you so much for joining me for this journey, and uh, as I mentioned, next week we're going to be jumping straight into the next book. But for now, we got to find out how this one ends. Chapter 27 The anthem booms in my ears, and then I hear Caesar Flickerman greeting the audience. Does he know how crucial it is to get every word right from here on? He must. He will want to help us. The crowd breaks into applause as the prep teams are presented. I imagine Flavius, Vigna, and Octavia bouncing around and taking ridiculous bobbing bows. It's safe to say they're clueless. Then Effie's introduced. How long she's waited for this moment. I hope she can enjoy it because, as misguided as Effie can be, she has a very keen instinct about certain things and must have at least some suspect 
Oh boy, I, I annihilated that sentence. That was no good. I hope she's able to enjoy it, because as misguided as Effie can be, she has a very keen instinct about certain things and must at least suspect we're in trouble. Portia and Cinna receive huge cheers, of course. They've been brilliant. Had a dazzling debut. I now understand Cinna's choice of dress for me tonight. I'll need to look as girlish and innocent as possible. Haymitch's appearance brings a round of stomping that goes on at least five minutes. Well, he's accomplished a first. Keeping not only one, but two tributes alive? What if he hadn't warned me in time? Would I have acted differently? Flouted the moment with the berries in the capital's face? No, I don't think so. But I could easily have been a lot less convincing than I need to be now. Right now, because I can feel the plate lifting me up to the stage. Blinding lights. The deafening roar rattles the metal under my feet. Then there's Peta, just a few yards away. He looks so clean and healthy and beautiful, I can hardly recognize him. But his smile is the same, whether in mud or in the capital, and when I see it, I take about three steps and fling myself into his arms. He staggers back, almost losing his balance, and that's when I realize the slim metal contraption in his hand is some kind of cane. He writes himself, and we just cling to each other while the audience goes insane. He's kissing me, and all this time I'm thinking, do you know? Do you know how much danger we're in? After about ten minutes of this, Caesar Flickerman taps on his shoulder to continue the show, and Peter just pushes him aside without even glancing at him. The audience goes berserk. Whether he knows it or not, Peter is, as usual, playing the crowd exactly right. Finally, Haymitch interrupts us and gives us a good-natured shove toward the victor's chair. Usually, this is a single, ornate chair from which the winning tribute watches a film at the highlights of the games. But since there are two of us, the game makers have provided a plush red velvet couch. A small one. My mother would call it a love seat, I think. I sit so close to Peta that I'm practically on his lap, but one look from Haymitch tells me it isn't enough. Kicking off my sandals, I tuck my feet to the side and lean my head against Peta's shoulder. His arm goes around me automatically and I feel like I'm back in the cave, curled up against him, trying to keep warm. His shirt is made of the same yellow material as my dress, but Porsche's put him in long black pants. No sandals, either, but a pair of sturdy black boots he keeps solidly planted on the stage. I wish Cinna had given me a similar outfit. I feel so vulnerable in this flimsy dress. But I guess that's the point. Caesar Flickerman makes a few more jokes, and then it's time for the show. This will last exactly three hours, and is required viewing for all of Pan Am. As the lights dim and the seal appears on the screen, I realize I'm unprepared for this. I do not want to watch my 22 fellow tributes die. I saw enough of them die in the first place. My heart starts pounding, and I've got a strong impulse to run. How have the other victors faced this alone? During the highlights, they periodically show the winner's reaction up in a box in the corner of the screen. I think back to earlier years. Some are triumphant, pumping their fists in the air, beating their chests. Most just seem stunned. All I know is that the only thing keeping me on this love seat is Peta, his arm around my shoulder, his other hand claimed by both of mine. 
Of course, the previous victors didn't have the capital looking for a way to destroy them. Condensing several weeks into three hours is quite a feat, especially when you consider how many cameras were going at once. Whoever puts together the highlights has to choose what sort of story to tell. This year, for the first time, they tell a love story. I know Peta and I won, but a disproportionate amount of time is spent on us right from the beginning. I'm glad, though, because it supports the whole crazy-in-love thing that's my defense for defying the capital. Plus, it means we won't have much time to linger over the deaths. The first half hour or so focuses on the pre-arena events, the reaping, the chariot ride through the capital, our training scores, and our interviews. There's this sort of upbeat soundtrack playing under it all that makes it twice as awful because, of course, almost everyone on screen is dead. Once we're in the arena, there's detailed coverage of the bloodbath, and then the filmmakers basically alternate between shots of tributes dying and shots of us. Mostly Peter, really. There's no question he's carrying this romance thing on his shoulders. Now I see what the audience saw. How he misled the careers about me. Stayed awake the entire night under the Tracker Jacker tree. Fought Cato to let me escape, and even while he lay in that mud bank, whispered my name in his sleep. I seem heartless in comparison. Dodging fireballs, dropping nests, and blowing up supplies. Until I go hunting for Rue. They play her death in full. The spearing, my failed rescue attempt, my arrow through the boy from District One's throat. Rue drawing her last breath in my arms. And the song. I get to sing every note of the song. Something inside me shuts down and I'm too numb to feel anything. It's like watching complete strangers in other Hunger Games. But I do notice they omit the part where I covered her in flowers. Right. Because even that smacks of rebellion. Things pick up for me once they've announced two tributes from the same district can live, and I shout out Peta's name and then clap my hands over my mouth. If I've seemed indifferent to him earlier, I make up for it now, by finding him, nursing him back to health, going to the feast for the medicine, and being very free with my kisses. Objectively, I can see the mutts and Cato's death are as gruesome as ever, but again, I feel it happens to people I've never met. And then comes the moment with the berries. I can hear the audience hushing one another, not wanting to miss anything. A wave of gratitude to the filmmakers sweeps over me when they end, not with the announcement of our victory, but with the pounding on the glass door of the hovercraft, screaming Peter's name as they try to revive him. In terms of survival, it's my best moment all night. The anthem's playing yet again, and we rise as President Snow himself takes the stage, followed by a little girl carrying a cushion that holds a crown. There's just one crown, though, and you can hear the crowd's confusion. Whose head will he place it on? Until President Snow gives it a twist, and it separates into two halves. He places the first around Peter's brow with a smile. He's still smiling when he settles the second onto my head, but his eyes, just inches from mine, are as unforgiving as a snake's. That's when I know that even though both of us would have eaten the berries, I am to blame for having the idea. I'm the instigator. I'm the one to be punished. Much bowing and cheering follows. My arm is about to fall off from waving when Caesar Flickerman finally bids the audience goodnight, reminding them to tune in tomorrow for the final interviews. As if they've got a choice. 
Peter and I are whisked to the president's mansion for the victory banquet, where we have very little time to eat as capital officials and particularly generous sponsors elbow one another out of the way as they try to get their picture with us. Face after beaming face flashes by, becoming increasingly intoxicated as the evening wears on. Occasionally, I catch a glimpse of Haymitch, which is reassuring, or President Snow, which is terrifying, but I keep laughing and thanking people and smiling as my picture is taken. The one thing I never do is let go of Peta's hand. The sun is just peeking up over the horizon when we straggle back to the twelfth floor of the training center. I think now I'll finally get a word alone with Peta, but Hamish sends him off with Portia to get something fitted for the interview and personally escorts me to my door. Why can't I talk to him? Plenty of time for talk when you get home, says Hamish. Go to bed, you're on air at two. Despite Hamish's running interference, I'm determined to see Peta privately. After I toss and turn for a few hours, I slip into the hall. My first thought is to check the roof, but it's empty. Even the city streets far below are deserted after the celebration last night. I go back to bed for a while and then decide to go directly to his room. But when I try to turn the knob, I find my own bedroom door has been locked from the outside. I suspect Hamish initially, but then there's a more insidious fear that the Capitol may be monitoring and confining me. I've been unable to escape since the Hunger Games began, but this feels different much more personal. This feels like I've been in prison for a crime and I'm awaiting sentencing. I quickly get back into bed and pretend I'm asleep until Effie Trinket comes to alert me to the start of another big, 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 big day. I have about five minutes to eat a bowl of hot grain and stew before the prep team descends. All I have to say is, the crowd loved you, and it's unnecessary to speak for the next couple of hours. When Cinna comes in, he shoes them out and dresses me in a white, gauzy dress and pink shoes. Then he personally adjusts my makeup until I seem to radiate a soft, rosy glow. We make idle chit-chat, but I'm afraid to ask anything of real importance because after the incident with the door, I can't shake the feeling I'm being watched constantly. The interview takes place right down the hall, in the sitting room. A place has been cleared, and the love seat has been moved in and surrounded by vases of red and pink roses. There are only a handful of cameras to record the event. No live audience, at least. Caesar Flickerman gives a warm hug when I come in. Congratulations, Katniss. How are you faring? Fine. Nervous about the interview, I say. Don't be. We're going to be having a fabulous time, he says, giving my cheek a reassuring pat. I'm not good at talking about myself. Nothing you say will be wrong, he says. And I think, oh Caesar, if only that were true. But actually, President Snow may be arranging some sort of accident for me as we speak. Then Pete is there, looking handsome in red and white, pulling me off to the side. Hardly get to see you. Hamish seems bent on keeping us apart. Hamish is actually bent on keeping us alive, but there are too many ears listening, so I just say, Yes, he's gotten very responsible lately. Well, I'll just this, and we go home. Then he can't watch over us all the time, says Peter. I feel a sort of shiver run through me. There's no time to analyze why, because they're ready for us. We sit somewhat formally on the love seat, but Caesar says, Oh, 
go ahead and curl up next to him if you want. It looks very sweet. So I tuck my feet up and Peter pulls me in close to him. Someone counts backwards and just like that, we're being broadcast live to the entire country. Caesar Flickerman is wonderful. Teasing, joking, getting choked up when the occasion presents itself. He and Peter have already had the rapport they established in the first night of the interviews. That easy banter. So I just smile a lot and try to speak as little as possible. I mean, I have to talk some, but as soon as I can, I redirect the conversation back to Peta. Eventually, though, Caesar begins to pose questions that insist on fuller answers. Well, Peta, we know from our days in the cave that it was love at first sight for you from, what, age five? Caesar says. From the moment that I laid eyes on her, says Peta. But Katniss, what a ride for you. I think the real excitement for the audience was watching you fall for him. When did you realize you were in love with him? Asks Caesar. Oh, that's a hard one. I give a faint, breathy laugh and look down at my hands. Help. Well, you know when it hit me? The night when you shouted out his name from that tree, says Caesar. Thank you, Caesar. I think... And then I go with his idea. Yes, I... I guess that was it. I mean, until that point, I just tried not to think about what my feelings might be. Honestly, because it was so confused and it only made things worse if I actually cared about him. But then, in the tree, everything changed, I say. Why do you think that was? urges Caesar. Maybe because for the first time... There was a chance I could keep him, I say. Behind the cameraman, I see Hamish give a sort of huff with relief, and I know I've said the right thing. Caesar pulls out a handkerchief and has to take a moment because he's so moved. I can feel Peter press his forehead to my temple, and he asks, So now that you got me, what are you going to do with me? I turn to him. Put you somewhere you can't get hurt. And when he kisses me, people in the room actually sigh. For Caesar, this is a natural place to segue into all the ways we did get hurt in the arena. From burns to stings to wounds. It's not until we get around to the mutts that I forget I'm on camera. When Caesar asks Peter how his new leg is working out. New leg, I say, and I can't help reaching out and pulling up the bottom of Peter's pants. Oh no, I whisper taking in the metal and plastic device that has replaced his flesh. No one told you, asks Caesar gently. I shake my head. I haven't had the chance, says Peter with a slight shrug. It's my fault, because I used a tourniquet. Uh, yeah, it's your fault I'm alive. He's right. He'd have bled to death for sure without it. I suppose this is true but I can't help feeling upset about it to the extent that I'm afraid I might cry and then I remember everyone in the country is watching me. So I just bury my face in Peter's shirt. It takes them a couple of minutes to coax me back out because it's better in the shirt where no one can see me. And when I do come out, Caesar backs off questioning me so I can recover. In fact, he pretty much leaves me alone until the berries come up. Katniss, I know you've had a shock, but I've got to ask. The moment when you pulled those berries out, what was going on in your mind, huh? He says. I take a long pause before I answer, 
trying to collect my thoughts. This is the crucial moment where I either challenged the Capitol or went so crazy at the idea of losing PETA I can't be held responsible for my actions. It seems to call for a big dramatic speech, but all I get out is one almost inaudible sentence. I don't know. I just couldn't bear the thought of being without him. Peter, anything to add? asks Caesar. No, I think that goes for both of us, he says. Caesar signs off, and it's over. Everyone's laughing and crying and hugging, but I'm still not sure until I reach Hamish. Okay, I whisper. Perfect, he answers. I go back to my room to collect a few things and find there's nothing to take but the Mockingjay pin Madge gave me. Someone returned it to my room after the games. They drive us through the streets in a car with blackened windows and the trains waiting for us. We barely have time to say goodbye to Cinna and Portia, although we'll see them again in a few months when we tour the districts for a round of victory ceremonies. It's the capital's way of reminding people that the Hunger Games never really go away. We'll be given a lot of useless plaques, and everyone will have to pretend they love us. The train begins moving, and we're plunged into night, until we clear the tunnel, and I take my first free breath since the reaping. Effie is accompanying us back, and Hamish too, of course. We eat an enormous dinner and settle into silence in front of the television to watch a replay of the interview. With the capital growing further away each second, I begin to think of home. Of Prim and my mother. Of Gail. I excuse myself to change out of my dress into a plain shirt and pants. As I slowly, thoroughly wash the makeup off my face and put my hair in its braid, I begin transforming back into myself. Katniss Everdeen. A girl who lives in the seam, hunts in the woods, trades in the hob. I stare in the mirror as I try to remember who I am and who I am not. By the time I join the others, the pressure of Peter's arm around my shoulders feels alien. When the train makes a brief stop for fuel, we're allowed to go outside for some fresh air. There's no longer any need to guard us. Peter and I walk down along the track, hand in hand, and I can't find anything to say now that we're alone. He stops to gather a bunch of wildflowers for me. When he presents them, I work hard to look pleased because he can't know that the pink and white flowers are the tops of wild onions and only remind me of hours I've spent with Gail. Gail. The idea of seeing Gail in a matter of hours makes my stomach churn. But why? I can't quite frame it in my mind. I only know that I feel I've been lying to someone who trusts me. Or more accurately, two people. I've been getting away with it up to this point because of the games, but there will be no games to hide behind back home. What's wrong? Peter asks. Nothing, I answer. We continue walking, past the end of the train, out where even I'm fairly sure there are no cameras hidden in the scrubby bushes along the track. Still no words come. Hamish startles me when he lays a hand on my back. Even now, in the middle of nowhere, he keeps his voice down. Great job, you two. Just keep it up in the district until the cameras are gone. We should be okay. I watch him head back to the train, avoiding Peter's eyes. 
What does he mean? Peter asks me. It's the capital. They don't like our stunt with the berries, I blurt out. What? What, what are you talking about? He says. It seemed too rebellious, so Hamish has been coaching me through the last few days, so I didn't make it worse, I say. Well, coaching you, but not me, says Peter. He knew that you'd be smart enough to get it right. I, I didn't know there was anything to get right. So what you're saying is that these last few days, and then I guess back in the arena, that was just some strategy that you two had worked out. No, I mean, I couldn't even talk to him in the arena, could I? I stammer. But you knew what he wanted you to do, didn't you? I bite my lip. Katniss. He drops my hand and I take a step, as if to catch my balance. That was all for the games. How you acted. Not all of it, I say, holding tightly under my flowers. But then how much? No, 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 for, forget that. I guess the real question is what's going to be left when we get home? I don't know. The closer we get to District 12, the more confused I get, I say. He waits for further explanation, but none's forthcoming. Well, let me know when you walk it out, he says, and the pain in his voice is palpable. I know my ears are healed because even with the rumble of the engine, I can hear every step he takes back to the train. By the time I've climbed aboard, Peter has disappeared into his room for the night. I don't see him the next morning, either. In fact, the next time he turns up, we're pulling into District 12. He gives me a nod, his face expressionless. I want to tell him he's not being fair. We were strangers. I did what it took to stay alive, to keep us both alive in the arena. That I can't explain how things are with Gale because I don't know myself. It's no good loving me because I'm never going to get married anyway and he'll just end up hating me later rather than sooner. That if I do have feelings for him, it doesn't matter because I'll never be able to afford the kind of love that leads to a family, to children. And how can he, how can he, after what we've just been through? I also want to tell him how much I already miss him. But that wouldn't be fair on my part. So we just stand there silently, watching our grimy little station rise up around us. Through the window, I can see the platforms thick with cameras. Everyone will be eagerly watching our homecoming. Out of the corner of my eye, I see Peter extend his hand. I look at him, unsure. One more time. For the audience, he says. His voice isn't angry. It's hollow, which is worse. Already the boy with the bread is slipping away from me. I take his hand, holding on tightly, preparing for the cameras and dreading the moment when I will finally have to let go.
everyone, thank you so much for joining me. Heart Hook, have a fantastic night. We'll see you later. Y'all, thank you a ton for being here. My name is Sam, this is Sidecar Stories, and if you are wondering how you can find out more about this channel, when I stream, etc., go ahead and use the links command in chat. That will pull up the Sidecar Stories link tree. Basically, it's got everything you need there. And I'm not going to go through the whole rigmarole once more. Noxora says, I forgot how hard the ending hits. Indeed. Indeed. The ending hits hard because... As some of you identified, and I think, you know, when we talked about the the threats that we're going to be facing them back home, there is, you know, this threat to, to person, of course, but there's also sort of threat to way of life, which are really important. I mean, quality of a life isn't, isn't really worth much if it doesn't have any quality to it. Um, and so this quality of life, this, this time that they are going to have now that they have left the arena, now that it's post-games. I mean, we see how it is for Hamish, right? We see you never really leave the games behind. You can't. As a matter of fact, they keep you coming back every year to train new tributes. What happens next? Life is going to not be easy, right? Beforehand, they've got this idea. Katniss has this idea that like, okay, if I can just if I can just win it. In those moments where she imagines winning, her imagination is, think of what this could do for my family. This could be somehow a positive thing, right? Well, she's won. Here she is. Even if even without Peta surviving, this is a very, very tough time coming up. I want to read some things that uh, popped up in Discord because Courier 6 has some stuff to say. And as I mentioned before, Courier 6 typically has some pretty good stuff. Uh, Courier 6 says, I used to hate the books slash stories that don't end at the obvious point. Um, pausing for a moment. This, I believe, is uh, harkening back to our discussion where we talked about, like, yeah, this story could very well have ended with the end of the games themselves. But they didn't. That was two chapters ago. We're still going. I used to hate the book slash stories that didn't end on the obvious point. It felt like a lot of yada yada. It seems to be something you get and appreciate more uh, as an adult. It's not that there's no happy endings. It's not even that there's no neat endings. It's that there's no endings. Stories continue in some way and an extended aftermath doesn't ring as yada yada to me anymore. It feels like the author followed the natural path of dangling threads to a point where they can be left alone. The thread's left alone, not the author. Although, possibly the author, too. <laughs> Blame Lord of the Rings Fallout uh, for this in me. But Hunger Games is a series where most of the content happens after the movies would have ended the story. My oh-snap uh, vintage is uh, is going to be back. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, and then it we it, uh, Career 6 is extended to some other stuff as well. Um, but yeah, this, this is... This is very natural, right? There's this idea that stories stories have an ending, but life doesn't, right? Any any event that you go through, even in death, right? That that is sort of an end to your story, but is it really? Think of movies and, and stories that end not with the person's death, but with you know some element of how their legacy has impacted the world. Um, Hamilton is a pretty good example, right? Yes, he dies near the end, but it's not the last thing that happens. Uh, lots of discussion about uh, the legacy that he left. Um, all sorts of stories like that, right? 
Um, so even in even death is not like the ending. It's not like everyone says like, okay, well the only real way to end something is in death. It's the perfect way to end a story about a person. N not really. That's part of what it is to live in the world. That stories, um, and, and this is this was really really challenging for me. Um, stories do not have. Uh, excuse me. Stories, stories sort of addicted me to this idea of a narrative. Right, a narrative where not only are there endings, but the content of the story, the duration of the story, had a meaningful tie to an ending. At that point of ending, there was something that could be learned or identified and sort of filed away as finished, as understood, as permanent. Life doesn't have those. Much in the same way that no sculpture can capture a human. It can capture a moment where a human sat still, but it, it doesn't capture the human being. In that same way, I think stories can capture ideas. They can communicate ideas and uh, bring them forward such that we can look at them under a microscope, right? It, it's hard to, to look at the world and try to gain anything meaningful from it. That's one of the really important things that stories do. They take parts of the world and let us look closely at them isolated without needing to compare them against everything else in the world. It's one of the great things that stories do. But that process of grabbing out only certain things to examine at a time in this story, grabbing out things like uh, uh, oppression, grabbing things about rebellion, grabbing out things about uh, uh, romance and uh, relationships, grabbing out just those things leaves a lot that hasn't been necessarily examined. It's, it's one of the inherent difficulties for me of loving stories so much that when I experience my own life, it's really hard to look at struggles, to look at uh, uh, joyful moments, to look at uh, any time where something was difficult, where I was working towards something, where I failed, to look at those things and have a really hard time knowing there's not some moment when all of this will suddenly be wrapped up into something meaningful. The only meaningful part about it is the experience of it. That's always been really challenging for me. Everyone, I hope you've had a fine night tonight. <sighs> Are you excited for the next book? Because I certainly am. Like I said, um, I am I am distant enough from my last time reading this full series that uh, I remember the overall structure of what happens in the next book, but there's a lot that I don't remember. And reading this one aloud, going back over it, right? Because I read it two times uh, every week, essentially. I read it to myself, and then I read it for the stream. Um, just that sort of like process of repetition, I've I've been able to identify a lot more moments from this. The the grief for for um, uh, Katniss and Peeta right now is the big thing that's sticking out to me. I don't know how about about how y'all are feeling, but that is the one that has really grabbed me on this reading. That grief we talked about showmances earlier, right? Where basically people who are in a show or uh, I think in in war is something that happens uh, frequently uh, but I think it's the same in athletics basically anytime that people experience stressful things together you form a really strong bond um, and and oftentimes that can manifest as romance sometimes it's just like yeah you become really sort of close friends with this person oftentimes those I, I should say no, I should not say often but there are plenty of times when those don't turn into sort of like lifelong things, but 
they are these very strong temporary moments. Life is different after that thing that you experienced together is no longer binding you. When I'm done being uh, uh, Bill Sykes in Oliver, my my companions, uh, my, my other castmates, the, the, when we're all done with that show, the things that bound us together are suddenly much, much more distant, right? The thing that binds us together during the experience is like, yeah, I'm spending half to uh, uh, my entire half of my day to my entire day with these people dedicated to this one thing. We're all trying to accomplish something together. In the same way, these two, right, they have gone from this moment, uh, these moments of like really, really high intensity, they must survive together, to now they're going out into the world. What holds them together now? All these feelings that they had about each other before are no weaker because they don't feel the same. So where do you put those? Where do you put those in your mind or in your heart or wherever you want to call it? Where do you take those feelings that you had for that person? Jem says, I tend to like middle school books the best. I don't know why. I, I think it examines some things that a lot of us aren't processing too well. Lots of young adult literature is literature describing a change of getting oneself accustomed to society. Or rebelling against that process of being accustomed to society. And I, I think with the way that society itself has evolved so much uh, over the past few decades, I think more and more we're looking at our own relationships to a larger world and thinking, where, where, where on earth could I fit into all this? So I think, frankly, yes, they are written for younger folks, but they're... The reason that they're written for younger folks is to identify a certain time in your life when you are supposed to be, or or I should say, when one might typically really be examining their relationship to a larger society. And although the people asking that question of how do you process that, um, they've asked this question in slightly simpler ways or to a younger group of people, the question itself has gotten so much more complicated, I think objectively more complicated over the past 20 or 30 years. A very strange time to be alive. So the fact that it's, that it is asking these questions in slightly simpler ways, I, I, well, I think simple ways is possibly the only, the only chance that I or many folks have of being able to examine this in a way that is not entirely overwhelming. There we go, folks. Oxy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, to anyone who jumped in tonight for the first time, I really, really appreciate all of you. Um, I want to say thank you to Oxy, Mortal, Gems, Spark of Love Good, Gwen Dog, Natalie, uh, for hanging out here to the end. I know there are other folks as well, but uh, y'all, it has been grand. I see I got a follow from uh, Vane Howlett, but it, it says this was a follow, but I know Vane has been running with us for a while. So Vane, it's good to have you back. <laughs> Y'all, I hope you have a really great week. Um, let me see if there's anyone to raid over to tonight. This seems prudent, does it not? Let me see. Who is... Nope, that wasn't the one to press. 
There we go. Who else is streaming tonight that we might go and say hello, hello to? Who do we want to see? Oh, Weave the Tail is up tonight. And Critical Misses. Oh, boy. Um, okay, here's the question, everybody. Oh, and Luis. Luis is up, too. Oh, now becomes the question. Now is the question. All right. I think... Let me see Let me see if anybody I know is currently on one of these streams. In, in which case, we will raid on over there. Um, one of these two streams. Okay, I don't see anybody I know here. Let's take a look for... This one, hold on, hold on. Don't worry, there's an ad, it's fine. Meanwhile, what are y'all getting up to this week? I hope you have a good one. Uh, what are you getting up to this weekend? Um, I will be back next week. Uh, no Tuesday next week, but like I said, I'm I'm looking at ending my hiatus. Um, Wednesdays, noon Pacific time, we've got side cannons. We're currently doing a chat plays adventure, so if you want to come play one of our characters there, I would urge you to do so. If you like Critical Role, if you like um, uh, just tabletop RPGs in general, uh, if you like Dimension 20, this is what we're doing, and you can help to play in that campaign. You can help to control one of our characters. Uh, of course, Thursdays, y'all know what it is. I'll be back here at exactly the same time next week. <laughs> Mortal says, this stream has become my happy place. Hey, Mortal, it's actually kind of the same way for me. I'm not going to lie. That, that's that's real for me. All right. Let me see. Okay. You know what? I think let's raid on over and say hello to Luis. Let's say hello to Luis. Here we go. We're going to raid on over. Um. There we go. Uh some 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 barnyard farmhouse fun times. <laughs> Y'all, I will see you in just a bit. Hop on in for the raid. Uh, I hope you have a fantastic week, and I will see you in the next one. Hey, Natalie, uh, it's been really great to have you here. So thanks for coming back around. I, I was anticipating you would, like, pop in. I occasionally have people pop in and then head on out. It's fine. This, Frankly, these streams are not for everyone. Um, it, this is not, like, why most people come hang out on Twitch. But I really appreciate you being here. Um, and then, of course, right, like, we got some new folks in who are like, yeah, I'll, I'll hang around for this. But, hey, we've got, you know, Gems, uh, Gwen Dog, folks who have been around for a long time. Sparkle Lovegood. Uh, even Mortal has been around for a bit at this point. Y'all, thank you a ton for being here. Uh... Let's go let's go look at some goat eggs. Bye-bye.